This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with visual artist Anne Hamilton. She's a distinguished university professor in the Department of Art at Ohio State University. I spoke with her on January 23, 2014, at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Download the MP3 of our show with Anne Hamilton at onbeing.org. I guess that was for turning on the microphone. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, it's really a pleasure to welcome you all here on a day when Minnesota leads the national newscast for coldest months in the U.S. And, um, of course, for us, it's just another day in paradise. And I've really come to mean that. Um, I want to take a quick opportunity to thank the MIA's Affinity Group for Contemporary Art, which helped underwrite this event. We could not possibly present amazing programs like this without this group of generous supporters. Um, and in that regard, I have to mention that there's a related series of programs taking place every Saturday at 3 p.m. from now through April, so pretty much winter. Um, and these sacred salons, as we're calling them, are introductions to a wide range of ideas and practices from spiritual psychology to laughing yoga. So um, take, a, take a jump in. It's free. No reservations are necessary. Just turn up at 3 p.m., Um, and experience what we've also been calling seasonal affect disorder solutions. (laughs) Uh, I am really pleased this evening to introduce two extraordinary individuals, radio host and writer Krista Tippett and artist Anne Hamilton. Each is a leader. Yeah. As you know, each of them is a leader in her own field with multiple acclaims and awards. Between them, too numerous to list, but a few Guggenheims, MacArthur's, Peabody's, things like that. Um, I'm also really excited that the Institute is being the host to this interview. Um, it's, this program is presented in conjunction with a new exhibition called Sacred, in which hundreds of sacred objects culled by museum curators have been brought together in a series of new installations that explore notions of spirituality in the sacred. The show asks questions like, what is sacred? What has been sacred over time in other cultures, other parts of the world, but especially to us today in a secular world? Although they employ extremely different forms of expression, both Krista and Anne are concerned with those fundamental questions of spirit and being, which are also embodied in great works of art. I'm so grateful to them both for taking this time to be with us here tonight and also for their willingness to have this conversation in a public forum like this. Um, Last thing I'll mention is that uh, I think, depending on how we're doing for time, we can take questions. Um, I'll let you all handle that. And then a final reminder that this program is being recorded for public broadcast, so please be sure to turn off your cell phone. And now please join me in welcoming Krista Tippett and Ann Hamilton. Well, I'm, uh, I'm just, I just couldn't be happier to be here. Uh, I can't remember when Liz and I first started talking about this, but it feels like we talked about it for a while, and then it happened fairly quickly. And, uh, and I love the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, right? And I've been spending time here, and I especially spent a lot of time here when my children were small. We mm-hmm. spent all these Saturdays sort of traipsing through the hallways here. And my daughter took one of those Saturday morning classes and had one of her pictures framed on the wall. Mm. I was so proud. Allie Tippett, age six. <laughs> Still in the hallway. 
So it's a, it's a big thrill to be here. And, and, and I've, you know, you have, um, we haven't met before. In fact, we're just now meeting. This is live. Literally laying eyes on each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you've, you've come up in the show. You and your uh-huh. work ha- have been discussed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, I, it's been really thrilling these last days to immerse mm-hmm. in your work and your writing and your thinking. And um, I'm probably going to look at my notes more than I usually do because your language is so precise and original and beautiful. Mm, thank you. And I want to really work with the way you put words together. Yeah. You know, when I'm, um, most of my interviews are by ISDN, so coming in through headphones. Mm. And, and when I'm doing that, I can, I can be looking at my notes and it's not disruptive, but, okay. but here we have physical presence and eye contact and all these great people. So um, let's just leap in. Oh, and I do, okay. want, I do want to thank Liz Armstrong, and I want to thank Susan Jacobson before we start. And we will. We'll speak for a little while up here for sure. m- maybe 50 minutes and then uh, open it up for some questions for a little while and then bring it back up here to close. Um, so you were born in, is it Lima or Lima, Ohio? Lima. Lima, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up in Columbus. And... Uh, I wonder if you would just, you know, I think a lot of people um, speak of you as an as an, a spiritual artist mm. or an artist who is in the realm of spirituality. I don't. I have to say, I don't really see you claiming that word so often. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that word makes me very nervous mm-hmm. because I don't. I don't actually know exactly what it means, mm-hmm. and I think that it's a word that is. Uh, for a lot of people, very loaded and means very particular things. Right. And so, you know, I think artists are slippery, that we want to not be categorized. Right. But so if, if I yeah. ask you um, about, you know, what was the spiritual background of your childhood? In, right. the, in, the, in the best, you know, the best connotations you mm-hmm. would fill that word with. You know, what, what do you think of? Love. Mm. Um... Yeah, I'm I'm a Calvinist. I think <laughs> I grew up um, in the Midwest. I'm like I think many of you here are Midwesterners, uh, and um, you know I I certainly grew up going to church with my family. But uh, you know it's hard to know sometimes what parts of that you absorb. Yeah, uh, I remember my grandmother saying, "Well, just take the parts you like, and don't worry about the rest of it." <laughs> I don't think she was a very good Calvinist, by the sound of it. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I remember uh, hearing her actually tell stories of um, earlier generations, which I think were Quaker pacifists. Mm. And even though that wasn't a direct uh, lived experience of my own, I think that I've always held some sense that something passes genetically or, you know, and that... Maybe I got a little tiny piece of that. Mm. Um, but, uh, but also, I think growing up where, you know, you worked hard and labor was its own reward and you, um, you took care of people that you loved. And I grew up in a very tight family. Mm. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's something you've said. I think I'm, I'm putting some words together. But you talk about 
the tactile experience of words and the tactile experience of things mm. as a space we are always straddling. Mm. And I'd love for you to talk about what you mean by that. And again, like trace, you know, where that awareness, how and when and where that arose in you. Um, I think I know. <laughs> uh, I think um, I, I was very close with my grandmother and, um, you know, I have really distinct bodily memories of sitting next to her on the couch, you know, and you're little and you kind of get in that space under the, her arm and her arms were full and uh, we would knit or needlepoint and she would read. And I think there's something about the rhythm of the hands being busy and then your body falls open to absorb and concentrate on what you're listening to, but not completely because you have two concentrations. And then from that, that that sort of cultivates a kind of attention Mm. that is the rhythm of those two things together. So the unfolding of the Mm. voice in space and then... The, the material accreting under your hand, and, and they have really different satisfactions. You know, mm-hmm. but, but you, know, you can see the material. And, um, and she was actually making, she was making, she was a maker. She was a maker. And she was making sweaters, sweaters, she was making things she wore. Yeah, or uh, we were needlepointing, or I, all those lap things. Mm. The, the <laughs> Making by hand, and and that that was tremendously comforting. Hmm. You know, yeah. um, you also said this lovely thing that that textiles are the first house of the body. Yeah, the first. What do you say? The first, the uh, body's first extension. Yeah, I, um, it's like you know, it's that question about like how do we know things, and that we grow up or we're educated in a world that. Um, ascribes a lot of value to those things that we can say or name. Mm-hmm. and But there are all these hundreds of ways that we know things through our skin, which is the largest organ of our body. And and so, you know, my first hand is that textile hand. And text and textiles are woven always, experientially for me. And then um, I think that when I first started making things out of cloth, it was like it was another skin. So I was thinking about it as an animate surface and thinking about it as something that both covers and reveals. Hmm. And um, and you also draw out um, this notion of threads, that there's the threads of sewing and, and threads of ideas, yeah. lines of speech, right, and the weaving that happens with both words and Substances, like yeah, that. and that's ancient. That is like the origins are in those for the the thread pulled from the body in so many cultures, or um, this um, something across space and time. Like like one of the things I was thinking about is well, what's the relationship between um, a book and an installation, which is how I usually work in, and how. You know, when you're reading a book, you're immersed and you're both inside that book and you're far away in the world that mm-hmm. it might take you to. And um, the book isn't any one place. You can't say there's the experience. It's across this, the whole space and the duration of that time. And 
and the uh, experience of walking through a, an installation is that it accretes in you. It isn't like there is the thing. And it's, I think it's that sedimentation or that mm. accretion of experience that where you come to feel, understand um, maybe what it is that you're walking through. And that the, the last thing that might happen as it comes up your body is that you might arrive in a way to say or name mm. in some way the nature or quality, maybe the quality of that experience. And um, how do you stretch the thread, I guess, of that duration long enough that you can trust that seeping up? Yeah. I feel like there's something, you know, as you said, this is ancient, right? That we mm-hmm. take in things through our body and it's working with our hands and that it's not all just verbal. But right. um, I don't know, I said to somebody recently, I'm trying to think who it was. It's another interview. I feel like Descartes has a lot to answer for. I think it was Eve Ensler. Oh, because mm-hmm. she, yeah. she's also so much about knowing our bodies and inhabiting our bodies and actually how... Um, and we got that away knowledge. from that in Western civilization. We made everything yeah. very cerebral, including spirituality. Right. Um, and as you said, I mean, these—I don't know—the image of your grandmother with her, with a yeah. needlepoint and the knitting sweaters. It's yeah. It's an old art. It, it feels like a lost art, but it's humanizing when we rediscover these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting because I teach in a university, and I think about where's the place in that kind of educational institution for embodied knowledge. Mm-hmm. Embodied knowledge. Embodied I love knowledge. that phrase, yes. And and how do we cultivate that, and how do we trust it? I think it's a big thing. How do we listen to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think sometimes we're very busy giving... Um, what we know away because we think it doesn't have any authority or like it's almost like we give our experiences away because we don't know how to trust what do you mean what do you mean that we give them away um i'm thinking as an artist yeah. that that um when you're making something you you don't know what it is for a really long time and so you have to kind of cultivate the space around you where you can trust the thing that you can't name. Yeah. And, and if you feel a little bit insecure or somebody questions you or you, 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 too, um, you need to know what it is, then what happens is you give that thing that you're trying to listen to away because it right. doesn't so sound tra- important you're, you're or it doesn't sound like an idea. You're trying to it here when it can't be there yet. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so how do you kind of cultivate a space that allows you to dwell in that, That's another word I love, dwelling. Yes. Dwell in that um, mm-hmm. not knowing, really, um, that is actually really smart and can become really articulate, but, you know, like the thread has to come out, and it comes out at its own pace. Right. Yeah. And I want to talk some more about the way you, you know, you do, you join words and materials, Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, I would just think there was one image. Um, it's very. It's actually impossible, I think, to to um, give any kind of summary of your work. Mm-hmm. At one point, when I was preparing, I was thinking uh, because a lot of people will be listening when we do the show. I mean, maybe right. a lot of people in this room 
are familiar with your work. Mm-hmm. But when you put it out on public radio, you have to assume, you know, no familiar, familiarity to deep familiarity. Right. And it's impossible to just give us a, a sentence that says, you know, she works with this kind of object or this kind of installation. Right. Um, so I am going to, add, you know, maybe you can tell stories as we go through about particular experiences. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying one of the images, and maybe this because I'm such a word person, because I suffer from this cerebral disease a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the the place where you, you know, literally drew out this idea was was it Lineament? Is that the project? Lineament. Where you it's, Wallace Stevens. Okay, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. and it was sentences, yeah. so threads of thought, right? Which you actually cut out. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's the physical sentence on a piece of paper mm-hmm. and then it becomes almost like a ball of yarn. Yeah, that's a per- that's perfect. Okay. So, uh, that's a great that will help me. Okay, so okay. Yeah. so the books, there were books and they were prepared. So they were cut in such a way that um, I could join my textile hand to my reading hand. Mm-hmm. And so the the uh, lines of text were cut so that if you started in the upper left-hand corner, which is also where you would start reading, you could lift it out as a continuous thread. Right. Right? Like this. Okay? And so in being able to do that, the two-dimensional page uh, and the printed page would wind front to back into a ball that was hand-sized. So there was this transformation of two to three dimension, but also obviously of the word into the the scale and hand of the body. Mm-hmm. And then those accumulated. And the, that sort of act of transformation um, is, you know, obviously linked to all of the history of relations in some ways between the material uh, and the word. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I think partly what you're also asking about the tactile is that, uh, you know, when we want to know something, we, you know, we reach our hand out to touch it. Like, I don't know that until I touch it like that. And then it's like it's taken in. And so I think I'm looking for processes also that allow that. You know, it's like the process will become embodied, and through that I will begin to understand it. And through that I will um, then come to words. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's so important yeah. just to note that what you're describing, which in some ways you receive through this lineage, I feel, of your grandmother, right? And then you've, right. you've run with it as an artist. Right. But cutting-edge you know, science is now showing us that all these things that we've tried to talk about come in through our bodies first. Right. Um, right. Including, I mean, the heart dark side, right? Trauma. Yeah. Um, but also our, our whole experience, our whole experience of the world is never just mental mm-hmm. or right. verbal. Right. And we're supposed to be moving around all the time. So if you need to move, no. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, and it's like... And I, I think the other part of it is that I... Um, think about the experience of maybe walking through the museum or taking in um, experience. It's at the pace of the body moving through space and that it isn't that we sit and have an idea or that we sit and, um, I don't know, ingest things in a certain way. It's that it's through moving in space that something becomes absorbed Mm -hmm. and comes to be felt. And also what strikes me is you're talking about um, an experience where we kind of re 
discover our wholeness, right? But there's mm-hmm. also this social aspect. I mean, you said it's across space and time, right? But it's also in, um, you know, in the threads of a garment, or, mm-hmm. or in the in the words that make a story or a book, right? Um, and then in what happens to both of those kinds of objects, yeah. it's also our connection to everyone else. Right. Well, and it's like, like in a, to go back to the knitting, like in the knitted structure, you can take a sweater or a sock and you can see each loop up and around and slip through and up and around and over. And, and, and so in that whole that has become, it never loses all the parts that constitute it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's also been, um, you know, a part of, I don't know, structuring the work in some way where every act of it is in some ways transparently present in the material and that you can see that. Mm-hmm. Even uh, as you can see the whole, you can see Even as you see can it. see the whole, you mm-hmm. can see all the parts and, and that we... Uh, you go back and forth between those. Um. Oh, so much to talk about. <laughs> um, I want here, something you can you I just, say something? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. You, I, can, you, you can interrupt me anytime. Interrupt you? This is your conversation. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to say partly that, like, I'm a radio person. Mm-hmm. I love. I we don't have a TV in our house, and it's not because oh, I'm not going to have a TV. It just hasn't kind of ever arrived, much to my son's chagrin. <laughs> but, but I've listened to radio a lot, and so I've been listening to your program for a long time, and then the podcast. But, and the intimacy of the voice, like, like I feel like you're already my friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the voice coming in and being as I drink tea or I work, and, and the kind of comfort of that. And um, I feel like, you know, many of the things that you've talked about in the program have, like, they make a condition within which I can think about certain things going on in my own work mm-hmm. and things that I don't maybe have, haven't found the language for. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think that partly in work, it's like wanting uh, to keep that kind of intimacy that I experience with a form of radio that is the form you work in. And on the, at the same time, um, create an experience that is like everybody, all, we, um, what, uh, like it's like a condition that allows many, many people to occupy together, even in, the, in their kind of aloneness. Yes. And so if I think about radio, yes. I think, you know, that someone else is hearing that in the same intimate way. And so I'm also joined to all those people. Yeah. And um, there's something about seeking the quality of that experience mm-hmm. that seems very important. Um, yes, I think it can be intensely um, individual and intensely communal yeah. at the same time. Yeah. But I think what you have helped me um, think about is just now is, um, you know, working with the voice alone yeah. um, is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I have had I've had the experience of of I'm not having this experience now, okay? But I've okay. had the experience <laughs> I've had the experience of being physically with someone. Yeah. And you're taking in so much when you're physically with someone. There's so much more happening than the conversation. There's 
there's eye contact, there's body mm-hmm. language, there's the physical experience of the other person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I often find, you know, I have to sit up straight, I have to dress up, right? Whereas if I'm in the studio at work, <laughs> I can have my eyes closed, and, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so there's, but there's something, I, I really come to love this discipline of just, because, you know, when I'm doing the ISDN, it's just the voice, and that's yeah. all the listener is going to get. Right. But that's not disembodied, right? No. So, I mean, I think what you've been helping me get is the, that radio... Which is just is working with the voice right. is a is a beautiful concentration of mm. this idea of um, of how words and language and ideas and the body. I mean, it's embodied knowledge, right? It's embodied conversation. I think it's um, a friend of mine who's a wonderful poet, Susan Stewart, said that hearing is how we touch at a distance. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's why we need our poets. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and um, and so how you know how are I guess in some ways for me what one of the questions is how do you make uh, the condition for tactile experience which isn't literally always touching yeah you know and, right and or like it, it, it can be visual but how is that felt and uh, uh, you know that's kind of a, a, a form thing that's always really a challenge in every situation. But um, I think just as like listening to the radio, um, and I can listen and wander around in several thoughts like at the same time. Knitting with your grandmother yeah. and telling stories. It's like, yeah. uh, I hope you don't mind. Like I'm also doing other things. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I think that's also uh, how like how I start projects is in some ways, just to try to listen. And what is the form of that listening for what something um, needs to become mm-hmm. or to find the question? Or, um, you know, listening is obviously a very specific thing in a conversation, uh, but also as a practice, uh, for me, uh, because I respond to spaces, the first architecture maybe is the coat, but then mm. the next one is this building around us, and and the felt quality of that already has all this, as you say, information in it. And so it's like, what is it that he is here that maybe asks a question or that can be brought so forward? You're listening to the space. You're listening. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's also it's so true that it's. Um, I also think uh, listening is something we really have to practice because it's our our everyday spaces are not set up for listening it's almost something mm-hmm. you have to it's like create say, the listen. space to do mm-hmm. and the intention to do or we're plugged in you know like right i like it's very funny i it's very hard for me to wear headphones at all or sunglasses because then i feel like i'm not where i am wherever that is mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm not here and you know, there's some filter going on. Um, but it's also how do you listen to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you uh, trust the... Which we're also not necessarily good at. Yeah, we're, we override that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to, this is related, I want to ask you something that intrigues me about your artistic process. Um, so you've talked about how when you approach a new project, you get fully absorbed, fully immersed... Fully afraid. Fully afraid. Okay, I don't think you wrote that. Um, and, and, and here's what you wrote. Particularity becomes abstraction. And I, 
Mm-hmm. I really um, I, I, that really intrigued me because because where that took me is mm-hmm. um, something I think a lot about is how in terms of in narrative in storytelling or conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something magical and paradoxical about the more particular and vivid the word you can put, more particularly and vividly you can put words around your experience, the mm-hmm. more it can actually become a story that is universal, that mm-hmm. other people can hear and translate into their lives. Mm-hmm. So when I heard you talking about particularity becoming abstraction, Mm-hmm. I, and I wondered if you would tell a story about you know, and then and then obviously it goes from there. And then you, I think you said you start to, you start you stop seeing, and then you start to see again, and then you see what it is. Mm-hmm. Would you tell a story about a project and th- that mm-hmm. process, those places? Um, I mean, I can think of one kind of early project where maybe it's really very specific. I was uh, doing a project. Uh, at the Dia Center for the Arts in New York, which is in Chelsea, which since then has become a large, you know, art community of galleries and stuff, but at the time was not. And uh, uh, I remember walking around the space, and it was empty, and it's a like a uh, industrial space in New York. And uh, I remember hearing an ice cream truck at a distance, like in the neighborhood, and it was not really a neighborhood of kids, so. That was anomalous. But hearing that, and but not being able to locate it. And so walking to the window, um, putting my hand out to touch the window, and then from that, thinking about how the sound turned me. Like there was an internal response to this external stimuli, just like a plant growing towards light. And so that very particular thing experience became the Project Tropos, which is um, an internal response to an external uh, stimuli. Uh, but it's also, as Natalie Sirot writes about, that it's like these you prepare yourself internally to speak. And can you, and, and that reaching one's hand out is that preparation. And so, or maybe a kind of liminal space. So as the project formed, which became this kind of oceanic landscape, uh, the tail hair from horses, and had a single person sitting, reading in it with a hot stylus that burned the words away. Um, I was thinking about the impulse to write, the um, impulse to connect to another person is, you know, through this social interaction of something coming in, and uh, and it, but it started with the ice cream truck. Did, did you follow <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. And so, but I was seeking the, the more abstract relationship mm-hmm. in that particular moment, mm-hmm. and then um, so I worked with an actor, Tom Curlew, who had had a stroke and had aphasia. And so I asked him to read for me from a couple of different texts that he helped select. Uh, And uh, what was really interesting for me is, of course, that he can read the words completely, but the words that he's reading are not necessarily the words that would come out of his mouth. And so 
Uh, we so what you heard is you heard the effort to come to speech, mm-hmm. like the effort. It wasn't what he was saying. It was this this process of trying to draw something up out of the body, and we placed that around the perimeter of the room outside the windows, which were changed out for um, transparent, um, semi-transparent glass, so you couldn't see out. And so as you would walk towards the window, that voice would move to the next speaker. So it was always, the voice was just always ever out of reach. Yeah. And meanwhile, your, your ankles and your feet were caught up in this uh, landscape of hair, which carries the cellular memory of the animal. Uh-huh. And, and so while you're immersed in, at your feet, you're following this thing that you can't quite hold on to. And, um, and I think it's that in-between space that I was quite interested in. Um, also, uh, the kind of like the book, the lineament book that we talked about earlier, that as the reader read with a hot stylus that became smoke, that that was reabsorbed by the material of the floor. So, um, so words again, become the word, matter again. They... Words became matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those are particular materially, but also larger and more abstract relations. But how they're particular is what makes the abstraction possible. Right, right. I think. It's mysterious. Yeah. (laughs) And then you wonder, well, is it just because that's how I describe it to myself? You know, that maybe no one else experiences it like that. I I do want you to tell um, the story of one of the early, early projects you did, maybe a first project when you were a student about where you had a suit covered in toothpicks mm-hmm. made of, which actually, when you look at the picture, you kind of look like Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why was that important for you? Because uh, you said that that was a really important yeah, project. That's a really great question. Um, I so what what Chris is describing is a is a man suit that I um, covered with thousands of individual toothpicks that have been painted black with little white tips. So I made a hide. That and I it doesn't, I mean, the photos I said, it, it doesn't look like toothpicks. It looks like it looks like, like a, a spiny, hair, yeah, for, spiny, yes. a porcupine yes. sort of thing. And um, I was in graduate school then, and uh, I was incredibly self-conscious. You know, you're really worried about, are you, what, you're, is it good? Um, there's a lot of pressure to articulate. Uh, there, um, you you kind of leave behind. I think when you go to graduate school, a lot of things that uh, you've shored up a tiny bit of confidence with. And mm-hmm. so, um, <laughs> and I had made a project. Maybe this is important to know that was uh, in my first like critique in graduate school, and it was an awful project. It was really really bad. But I had all sorts of words that I could put with, like, why I had done it all. And, um, and then I just, and I realized that that wasn't what I really cared about. And so I thought, is there a way to take this kind of physical, or the maybe emotional predicament, or the self-consciousness, and find a physical form for that? And in oh. inhabiting it, does it then change my relationship to that fear or to that So the suit represented how you felt, which was all spiny and, and conspicuous. Right. Yes. And that was really interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, it's almost like if I can be in it, then um, 
it's like how do you, how does your own vulnerability like then become a place of incredible strength mm. Mm. and that if you can just occupy that mm. then there's a whole lot of knowledge in there yeah mm. That makes me think of something that's disconnected, but it was just on my mind. Um, somebody I interviewed years ago, Jean Vanier, who created mm-hmm. these communities around the world that are centered around people with mental disabilities. Yes. And he talked about um, the reason he believes that so many of us are so uncomfortable with people with disabilities, that mm-hmm. we all walk around all the time you know, trying to hide whatever's wrong with us or whatever we think is wrong with us, and mm-hmm. that, that people who, have, who carry their you know, their, their flaws on the outside are terrifying. Right. Because we spend so much energy mm-hmm. trying to keep that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, I think when I first started teaching, my students called it the public humiliation class. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, it wasn't that it was so humiliating. It was really the, like I was asking them to do things in public that were about taking a risk. Mm-hmm. You know, and that if you can do that, if you can let yourself fail, if you can let yourself be really bad, if you can take the risk, or just look awkward on look purpose, awkward, <laughs> then you can do a whole lot of other things after that. Mm. Yeah. Something that also is really intriguing to me is how you talk about using time, mm. time itself as a process and a material. Mm-hmm. Can you say some more about that? I, well, I think in some ways, um, I don't know the best way to say it, but that, like everybody, you know, we ha- we're, our lives are really, really busy, and we're f- fragmented in many ways. And I think that within the work, I try to make time for those things that, in some ways, it's hard for me to maybe make time for in my daily life. Huh. So if I can say I'm going to read out loud for six hours in the context of a project, then I can give myself the time and space to do that in a way that it's hard outside of the work, maybe sometimes. Um, but maybe more, how is it a material? It's a, I think um, the long, I guess the long duration of the works, I'm asking you to enter the time of the work and to spend as much time as you kind of want to give to it. So in the project last year at the Armory, which was a really large project, and, and it had a whole rhythm to the day, that um, I was there every day, all day, uh, learning what it was. And, and I was that I understood that it was really important for me to spend all that time to actually come to understand it, and it was interesting to then um, be joined, I think, by other people in the time there. Uh-uh. I don't think this really answers your question. But well, but what you're getting at is um, how I, I think so many of us in our lives now we um, it's kind of like we we receive time as kind of a bully, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's all about deadlines. And which we're not meeting. We never. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're only at the last minute. And all the things we can't get to do. So yeah. it, we, we kind of receive time passively. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the physicists tell us that our whole sense of time is completely illusory. Any, right. we, we don't get it. We can't internalize what it really is anyway. And so what right. you're talking about is is actually kind of claiming time as a thing that you're 
grappling with and also working with and actually, I mean, you're kind of insisting that it be more generous. Yeah, and I think that in many ways it's it's like how do you um, let things take the time they actually need? That mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it's it seems like this whole efficiency thing is really <laughs> doesn't work very well because in fact there's this thinking that's always going on inside the thing that you're engaged with and. You, you're not really having the experience if you're rushing off to the next thing, right? So even when you're really, really compressed for time, how do you cultivate just being in the time you have at that moment? Mm-hmm. And how, do you, um, how can you just be present, even if it's like you know, a few minutes? Mm-hmm. Which, which is a spiritual discipline, I think. Yeah, maybe. But, mm-hmm. but you're, I mean, it's a practical discipline, too. It's practical. Yeah. Yeah. It's practical, definitely. Um, and I think, that, I think the other thing is that we just we assign so much value to being busy. You know, we yeah. wear busyness as a kind of badge right. of, right. Like, it, like, what we're doing is necessary in some way. And, uh, <laughs> and, but it's like we're the one that invents that. And so how... Um, yeah, how do you kind of push things off as long as possible? And I think even in my process, like um, that, I I I wait as long as possible to say what something's going to be. You know, I try to suspend all the possibilities um, till the very last moment because I know that what something needs to become will needs all of that time, mm-hmm. and that. Um, maybe an institution or Liz is asking for, I don't know, somebody may ask for, you know, you have to write a press release or you need a title because yeah. something's going to be public and there are real deadlines for that. And so instead of getting scared by that, how do you find a way to um, acknowledge what you know but also what you don't know so that you can suspend that process as long as possible? And I think part of making work live is to continue that process into the public life of the work. Mm-hmm. So there's a process you have that's maybe behind the scenes that brings you to a certain point. But then when something opens, it isn't a done thing that's finished. It's this thing that's now just opening to something completely different. And so you also need the time to take that relationship and understand what that is. Mm-hmm. And I know like the times when I've maybe opened a project and been whisked away to something else, it's really uh, unsatisfying. I didn't learn from it. Um, yeah. That's again it's an expression of this um, this I would say reverence almost that you have for embodied knowledge that you let it that you let the knowledge find expression everywhere before you that the words are the last thing that that comes, because I guess maybe when you put but words I'm, to it, does it start to shut it? It starts to define it. Right? But I'm full of contradictions yeah. because um, I think, on the other hand, it's finding the word that you need is also really in part part of opening it up. So on the one yeah. hand, suspension, and on the other hand, reading voraciously and finding the poets or l- something you hear, mm-hmm. um, the word that you pull out of the newspaper, that in another way, the process of 
um, moving towards the tangible and tactile is also needs those words to grow it. And so it's, it's kind of both at the same time. Um, you know, I think that when I'm reading, I'm always, I feel like reading is like, is a huge part of my studio. Not that I read in the studio, but the page is the studio. And there'll be just, you know, those two words that are side by side in a particular way that are the very thing you need to understand something that was less articulate maybe or not worded before Mm -hmm. that and that when I find those words or those things that I need to read they make a landscape uh, I think a landscape of permission around the process Mm. so it's it's always both so they so they are they are boundaries and anchors for words yeah, and it's how but we. It's you're really, saying not to rush that because because they're boundaries and anchors. You have to be really careful with them. It's how we do everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like mm-hmm. um, how it's like a word can uh, the way something is named or categorized can actually really open something up or it can close something yeah. down. So it's how you use it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about your relationship with technology. I mean, you said you don't have a TV, but you've done digital prints. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but um, I, I think you also said some interesting things about, you know, technology amplifying human presence at a distance, which, yeah. which can be, like all of this, can ha- it can be dark and light. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, the, the incredible thing about technology is it, it amplifies and extends our reach, the reach of a voice. Um, greater than the reach of one's touch. But, uh, um, and so I think one of my questions has been what is the value or, uh, yeah, what is the value or form of making by hand or making at the pace of the body when we live in this technologically extended time? And so I think that... um, uh, I mean, fortunately, I have a lot of great help in the studio that helps me with that technology. Uh, but uh, I know that the there's like an analog digital joint that is really particular and changing constantly. Mm-hmm. And the nature of that joint allows certain kind of images to be made, certain... Um, uh, quality of imagery is particular to like how it lens sees in this kind of camera generation of camera, and I think those are part of my materials. It's that it's kind of this this joint. You could almost say, what was it? What was this phrase of yours that um, that textiles are the first house of the body, and then you said physical space is the second house, and there's a way in which these virtual spaces we inhabit. Are a new, are a new piece of architecture for our lives. Well, and, and and so partly it's like so. How is that tactile? Yeah. You know, and how, where is the and what's the nature of the we in that? Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't really done like a online project particularly, but uh, you know, I think about. I spend tons of time on my computer, and I do a ton of research on it, and what I can find is extraordinary yes. and I wouldn't ever want to lose that yeah it's a treasure um, trove and on the other hand I'm scissors and glue and and you know uh, scotch tape and whatever and so that it's more like how do you balance 
the screen and what it makes possible with, which is often the far away with the kind of close at hand. And but you know that's also there's a generation that's growing up thinking inside the technology mm-hmm. in a way that you know, isn't my generation. Right, for whom it really is a house in a way that it's never going to be a house yeah. for someone who was 40 when it came along. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being at the Minneapolis okay. Institute of Arts with the artist Anne Hamilton. Let's just talk for a few more minutes, and then we'll open this up. Um, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Oh, all right. So tell us about your pinhole camera. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so everybody knows what a pinhole camera no, is. No, no, you have to explain it. Oh, I do? Okay. <laughs> yes. So uh, a pinhole camera, I guess it's like the radio. I mean, it, it's, it's magic. And it's, okay, it's uh, crystal clear now. <laughs> so it's uh, a, a dark box with a tiny little hole in it. And the light that goes through that hole makes an image on the back, back of the box. And so it's the first camera. Well, maybe not the first camera, but uh, it's the it's the one of the very earliest way of making an image. And so um, I started a project where I made pinhole cameras um, that were very small that would fit inside um, the cavity of my mouth. And I started thinking about my mouth as a room uh, because you know, unlike others senses that those are objects but the mouth is a space and um, I became interested in thinking about what happens when one sense is displaced to another part of the body so if the sense of sight is joined to the place of voice what results from that and so the pinhole camera opened and then my lips when they opened are like the shutter of the camera but also it's like one of those putting oneself in the context of something slightly embarrassing. So when I opened my mouth, <laughs> that I'm standing face-to-face very close to another person. And so the pinhole is registering the nature of that face-to-face exchange without the apparatus of the camera, but with my open mouth. And... Um, so in some ways, it makes a condition to be photographed that's not like being photographed. And, and maybe the image is the trace of that exchange. Um, I mean, there's so many layers for me in that, because also if you're standing very close to someone you don't really know and your mouth is open, yeah. it's very intimate, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you can see yourself in the pupil of the eye oh. of the person that you're facing. And I think the pupil... I think the origin of that is the little puppet in the eye. And so you see yourself upside down in someone else's eye. Hmm. And so it's really about like how this makes um, a context or condition for the exchange of that sort of odd intimacy. Hmm. And um, I, I did that for a long time. I had a little Tupperware box, and I would travel until it got too complicated with the airport security. <laughs> and... <laughs> No, but it was I, because it allowed it allowed something social to happen. Yeah, yeah. and I, I looked at pictures of you, um, well, with people doing taking pictures of them, and it's right. I mean, it was it was playful. Yeah, right. It couldn't help but be playful, and there was laughter because you because what are we all told? Well, you know, don't close your mouth. Close don't your mouth. <laughs> close yeah. your mouth. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's that way about, like, how do you set up a situation where something can happen but you're not controlling what mm-hmm. happens? Mm-hmm. But it has every... The consequences that have everything to do with what's made. You know, so you're, you're making a circumstance but not directing it in some way. And, and when, when I interviewed Meredith Monk, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful again, vocalist, artist, performance artist... Um, and you've done some fabulous work with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, I remember her, and, and this is related to, I mean, this is these different, well, she, the project that you did together called Mercy mm-hmm. also had this um, relationship between the mouth and the hand. Right. Again, joining those different The senses. first extensions. Yeah. yeah, and she told a story about, um, well, why don't you tell that story about how you, y- you both together saw a story of a, father and a son who were both shot at the Israeli-Palestinian border by both sides. Mm-hmm. These people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time in a tragic way. And Meredith talked about how you, you realize that you can, a hand can hold a trigger, a hand can reach out to touch someone. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I think with that project, which was called Mercy, the, it was about um, thinking about how do we... In, in some sense, inhabit the agency of what we can do with all the possibilities of the hand and mouth. And we made, I think, at one point in that project, I mean, per, certainly we were responding politically and to the newspaper comes in every day, and that becomes part of your landscape of response, uh, what's happening in the world. And how can your small act, singular act of making, have any consequence um, and so the only thing you can do is think about the consequence of your immediate extension and how you do that. And so we made a list, actually, at one point, I think, of all the, the, all the things the hand can do and all of the kind of appetites and qualities of what the voice can do, and that those are actions hmm. and, and that how are those our material and that didn't necessarily structure the performance in any way, but it was um, the, the conversation partly behind that. And, and how do we own that? How do we own that? Mm-hmm. Wear it. I'm always... Um, is that partly what you're... Yeah. I mean, a little bit? like. Yeah, it made me think of... Um, I was in Israel for the first time a couple of years ago, and we were going to the Wailing Wall. Mm. Um, which, you know, I think I wanted to be overtaken by a sense of mystery and God's presence. And I was, in fact, was irritated by the separation of the genders. And it was mm-hmm. hot. You know, it was touristy and right. gimmicky. But, um, but when I, have you been there? You walk up to the wall and here's the yeah. thing. To me, it wasn't even the prayer that made it incredibly powerful. It was putting right. it was putting my hands on that wall and yeah. thinking of all the hands. million, all the hands, right, and that and you're joining those. Yes, and yeah. that felt mm-hmm. sacred. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and I think we're trying to, you know, in many ways, like trying to find opportunities in which we can have that experience, and and we can feel our own. Uh, presence, gesture, whatever, in relationship to that much larger one uh, across time and space and cultures. And, and so, you know, as a 
artists working in a contemporary context, it's like, how do we make, how can we create a circumstance in which um, those kinds of processes of joining and acknowledgement can occur? Um, and I'm in abstraction again, right? No, what? no it's. <laughs> Here's something you said also that is related to this. The I just it's a beautiful thought and I have to like sit with it. The body through physical labor leaves a transparent presence in material and mm-hmm. labor is a way of knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean I'm always going through this museum attracted to those things where you feel the presence uh in some way or another or the evidence in the material of uh the body. So the worn steps that are in a marble staircase, the the way you feel a handrail when you go up, yeah. um, that that consciously or unconsciously your your body is aware of those things. And um, you know, one of my studios, I think, partly is going to the flea market, and um, and it's partly your your. Blank. I'm blank, and I'm just looking at where my attention falls, and it's to this odd sort of disparate category of objects, but in some ways what connects all of them is that there's some evidence of someone else's body in that object. Mm. And, you know, we're in a museum that is full of that. Yes, again, it, that and just is a, is a way to talk about what is so special about a museum. Yeah. Well, and that you fall open to those things. And yes. even if you, you don't know its history or you don't know where, where it's from and you can't place it in time, there's still this recognition that is like very strong. And that recognition makes you curious mm-hmm. and, that, and makes you fall open. And when you fall open to it, then your heart falls open, right? And anything is possible. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Let's do a little. Let's let's have a conversation with you. Um, I don't know how this is working. Are there some microphones? I believe. Let's see. I don't know. I, there, there are. Oh, walk up to the microphone. All right. So we'll just talk. I'll ask another question, and then we'll start this. Oh, so so this place, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, has a sacred. Mm-hmm. Exhibit now, and um, and this conversation we're having is part of this event, this sacred right. event. Um, spirituality is not a word you love. Is sacred a word that speaks to you? What does that word mean? Um, I think sacred is a is a is a bigger word, and so um, I feel more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think one of the things is that, that so many of the amazing objects and uh, pieces, old and new, in that exhibition, um, many of them, you know, they come from a living context that had um, a spiritual or sacred um, intent and house. Right, and that we've taken those things, so many things in this whole museum, not just in that show, that was their original context, and they had a meaning because they had a a function, they had a use, they had a place in a ritual, and that 
here they're they're very much removed from that, just as we are, I think, very removed from uh, access to maybe those rituals in our own life. Mm-hmm. And and so, in some ways, like you can't ever recreate that context that things have been taken out of. But what is it that can happen here? And you know, I I think about how many people. It was, we're walking around the galleries tonight, or when you, I don't know, go in the Met in New York, another incredible encyclopedic museum, that we want to be there. We want to stand in front of these things. They remind us of something, that they, they speak to something that we need to feel. And, um, uh, and it's very alive to us and necessary. But it, it's... Um, not re- returning those. It's like, how do they have a contemporary life that's in a very different context? And so, you know, I think that's something museums everywhere are really grappling with in a lot of ways and thinking mm-hmm. about how do these things become animate to the time that we're in and meaningful across. They carry all that history, but they are now in a very different context mm-hmm. and they satisfy a different. Um, or maybe the same longing, but differently. There's some similarity between, um, you know, the uh, the atmosphere of explicitly sacred places and the atmosphere in a museum, right? I mean, how I many agree. spaces in this culture do we stand silently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and just take something in and soak in beauty and be in awe of that. Well, I think when you go through the doors, like when if you go through the doors of a church, you know, you you enter that threshold and it's a different space yeah. and the air is different and it's maybe more quiet. Time is different, I think, too. You, you're willing to just sit and be. And I think that we come needing that a lot to the museums very mm-hmm. much so. Mm-hmm. Never thought about that before, and um, and I think also as an artist, you know, I'm very. Um, I think one of the questions that is behind a lot of the things I'm working on is, well, where is it that we can gather, and kind of be alone together, and and uh, you know, there's so much as we all know, us them, and uh, you know, what are the circumstances for we that I can. Um, enjoy the pleasure of something I'm seeing here, knowing that I'm also sharing that with a person next to me. And there's a interesting kind of intimacy with this total stranger that the situation makes possible, and uh, and that that can change your whole day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's another one of those experiences. Like we were talking about radio. I mean, or, or it's that it's communal and individual at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that that alone And that together, art is like that, too, yes. That um, maybe too much together makes us really nervous. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the, the, the alone together is something that I think we're trying to fi- figure out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts with the artist Anne Hamilton. I should say the maker, Anne Hamilton, because we haven't talked about that. That's the word you prefer to artist. Um, Oh, come on. Does nobody have a a question or a comment? Oh, back there. All right. Yes. Hi, my name is Matt. I I really appreciate the conversation and being able to be a part of it just through the listening process. I 
Uh, as an architect, I also appreciate the idea of kind of our body being housed and that happening at kind of a number of levels and how that affects us. So all of that being said, I, I am curious how you as a teacher um, and as an artist deal with vulnerability when it comes to the process of making um, and kind of how much of yourself or how much of your students do you encourage to kind of just really throw out there for, you know, whatever it means to throw things out there. Well, I think that the you tr- uh, as a teacher, you try to make a uh, a place that's um, both rigorous and is pushing on one hand and safe on the other. You know, and how do you cultivate uh, a conversation? You know, among the peers, where they're both supportive and they're also, um, you know, very critical. And uh, you know, I think that's different in kind of every circumstance. But is that what that what's so what's so nervous making about what if? And so if you can cultivate the, like, what-if attitude, then there's not too much weight put on any singular attempt to address it. And that, or it's like well, many of my students right now are in the middle of getting ready to put their MFA thesis show up. And it's very nervous-making because all of a sudden some of the confidence that you've accrued is, like, draining out of you. Is it You're getting ready to be public. And it's like how do you continue to... Um, it's just your next project. And, and, you know, if you can't fail, if that judgmental part of you starts kicking in and stopping you from or making you paralyzed, then um, you actually can't ever make your next piece. And so, you know, it's really, um, as a teacher, you know, it's trying to cultivate a, a landscape of permission for the students to fail. Hmm. Um, Many of Krista's questions and and your responses reminded me of a beautiful installation piece of yours that was uh, at Mass Mocha Mm -hmm. that was in a space that actually looked quite Mm -hmm. cathedral-like. And I was thinking of your question about time as a material as one of them, and then your comment about... um, as you walk through a piece, how, how um, your experience of it is embodied. And it had, it had pieces of paper mm-hmm. coming out of, I don't remember the name of it. I, I, I feel like there maybe was something about text and absence of text, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then there was a balcony that actually had pews in it of some kind, but I wondered if you could just say more about that piece in the context of this discussion. Uh, and what well, was it called? It was called Corpus, and it was at Mass Mocha, and it had, it was, I mean, one, it was a huge old industrial space where they had once manufactured capacitors which store energy and then release it, and it also had been a textile factory where they had dyed, and so a dyed cloth, and and so, <laughs> and, and the uh, it had once been the room that you're describing with the, there were many mechanisms that were powered by air that were 
dropping single sheets of white paper to the ground from like 30 feet. And there was a rhythm to that, like that you could hear the air kind of like breath. And um, uh, I think uh, what was very what was very interesting to me about this, that project that maybe has some bearing here, is that uh, I realized that maybe the central material of the work in some ways was you as the figure walking through it and that a piece of paper might draw your attention because it catches the light or a recorded voice raising and lowering from a set of bell-shaped speakers might draw your attention because it pulls you this way in this enormous landscape of this old industrial architecture and that the pattern of how you were turned by the elements in the three parts of the exhibition actually completed themselves in you. And I think that that actually opened my work up for me a lot and, that, and made me, uh, perhaps helped me understand and articulate a little bit that, that the piece is, a, is um, not about defining the nature of that experience but making a condition within, within which you can wander around and um, pay attention to the things that your attention are is drawn to. And, and in that grows the project. Um, so... Um, and what were the views? They were made, they were very heavy, large timbers that had actually been the timbers that were the beams that divided the two floors originally of that two-story space. And they were in another part of the building. And so we used those to make a whole series of benches that were white and were stacked up on the second floor in the balcony, and, but which were unoccupied, um, maybe occupied at times by people. And I think in many ways that pew there, and there was a spinning video that would sometimes catch the light of the, or catch the papers falling. And I think in, in many ways it's the longing to, to um, a longing to congregate, a longing to sit together with other people that are different um, from me. And to um, uh, make some shared experience uh, and I think that, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't go to church. I don't have a place where I have that, that place of congregation. And I think, uh, um, I think I'm looking for what the form of that can be mm-hmm. and how that can happen. You know, I'm really attracted to Quaker meeting halls and I'm, and, uh, there's, uh, um, oh, the thing that just puts me on edge is shape note singing and how everyone sits, you, you're in a square you know, facing each other and one person is calling, but who's calling the song passes from person to person. And um, uh, how do you, how do I, how does perhaps making that circumstance become part of what I can do through the work? I kept thinking... Um when I was reading about how you approach your work and uh-huh. objects and placement and this word attention, you just use the word attention, yeah. of this um, beautiful definition of prayer by Simone Weil, mm-hmm. absolutely unmixed attention is mm-hmm. prayer. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'll take that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I wanted to return to the space where you were talking about the tension and between not grasping at labels, but also not suppressing words as they arise. Mm-hmm. Um, and offer the comment that what is wonderful to me about the realm of art is that words are never irrevocable. They can be over. They can always be overwritten in the next piece, the next mm. poem, the next thought, mm-hmm. so that you know one's art becomes a sort of endless chain of substitutions. So. Um, for me, I don't find that language fixes me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's um, it's always mutable, right? And that's it. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Well, and I think maybe in some ways that I'm learning to also see that, like you know, some of the earlier work that was, you know, maybe in some ways more of a refusal of. Um, how I perceive the relationship between language and material, you know, has really shifted. And language is much, much more central to the work. And I, I, you know, luxuriate in it. And it's more about the joints between and and the nature of that and how uh, what what uh, literature and what poetry and what our ability to language our experience makes possible as one form of knowing that is always in hand with touching and um, the, you know, history of materials and that, um, uh, you know, that like we're looking at these incredible knit pieces in the museum and, you know, knowing that they, if it's out of silk, it carries the animal and it has embedded in that materiality is all of this kind of cultural history that is present there if you can recognize it. And how do you bring that recognition to the surface? And that's partly through words. Yeah. I think the question made me wonder if, is there an implication that words are more problematic, more irrevocable, or less irrevocable in ordinary life than they are in art? Is it harder to take words back in everyday life? Well, they can sting sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's like the danger here is making any hierarchy at all, mm-hmm. really. There's, it's really, it's more like we don't want to privilege one kind of experience over another. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in this, like, seesaw thing of trying to, of all of, we need all of it. We need everything to understand where we are, what we can do, mm-hmm. what are the questions. Yeah. I read something when I was um, preparing. that w- It was from the New York Times. It was 1999, which is another century. <laughs> but, I mean, a long time ago. But it was about, yeah. it was about an installation you did called Mayen. I don't even know how to say it myself. Yeah, I, good. I didn't either. <laughs> okay. It's Greek. Apparently the Greek root of the word mystery. Um, anyway, you said something about uh, that, 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 well, this is what the Times said, that it was about how we know what we know and what we blind ourselves to, mm. how the invisible affects us and how the visible can be veiled. And mm-hmm. it's such a wonderful image and we don't have time to go into it, so we'll just let it sit there. Um, but you said, I'm thinking, this is 1999, that I am the American representative mm. and it's the eve of the millennium. Mm-hmm. I want to bring to the surface the questions we should be asking. Mm-hmm. I'm just that's so intriguing to me, and I guess I'm wondering what questions you think we should be asking now. 
here yeah. <laughs> in this young, tumultuous, you know, amazing century? Well, how to be together. I mean, isn't that, that seems like the biggest question, you know, and how, how, how to be together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that uh, every project, in some ways, it, it, ha- it, it's, it forms by f- maybe feeling that I have the right question for it. And uh, everything else is kind of debris until I can kind of, get to that. And it's usually kind of a, just a large general question like mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. but the circumstance is what makes it particular. So maybe not to talk about the American Pavilion, but to talk about the Armory, although just maybe is a interesting place to arrive, is that it's a civic building. And so it's a um, over 100 years old, and it's had all manner of civic gatherings. So what is the civic now mm-hmm. seems so huge and so important and, and something for us to, re- to make mm. together. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Was there one more question? I don't know where the... I can't see where the microphone yeah, there's is. One right okay, let's do one more question. Um, well, for so many of us here who are makers and um, <laughs> teachers, and perhaps also parents, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how those things inform each other in your life, and also how you keep the maker part of you um, alive with enough, enough time and enough nourishment mm. to not feel like you're always uh, clawing at the small amount of time or mm. space in your head that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I sense something. Yeah, you know, sense a tiny bit of desperation, maybe. Yeah. I, I I'm just saying, maybe. <laughs> well, I think um, when my son was born, uh, you know, I think I just had to learn how to make differently. That, that uh, you know, it happens in your kitchen, and that it, hap- it, it just happens differently. And I think there was a process of trusting that just because you can't be in whatever studio, whatever you call your studio, doesn't mean that you're not having a thought <laughs> or insight or something. And, and I, I think it's that if I conceive of them as being separate, then I will be forever frustrated. But if they're all one practice, and every project is, and all the projects are one big project, then, <laughs> then I think I... You know, not that we don't feel pressed for time in some ways, but then there's an anxiousness that I can at least delay a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes the most important thing you need to do is, like, make the soup. And, <laughs> and in the soup is going to be the project, even though, you know, a kid is sick upstairs, and that's why you're making the soup or whatever. And, uh, you know, I learned, and I, like in teaching, um, I learn a lot from my students, and I think that it's reciprocal. It's like everything is reciprocal, and everything feeds everything else. And uh, you know, it's like how it's like your attitude has to change to be able to allow yourself to see it like that. Um, but in the end, there's also only so much time. So it's also, I think, particularly as a woman, not feeling guilty for saying no. I can't do that. I can't do one more thing. And I'm not really great at that. I'm learning. 
but um, also I, I think one of the hardest things is to recognize one's limits and um, and be okay with that instead of like judging that. Judging yourself. Judging yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't be the super person that I would like to be. Um, and, uh, and that's listening, you know. Um. You, you do um, like this language of being a maker, mm-hmm, I think, very much. as much or maybe more than being called an artist. And, yeah. uh, and it's just occurring to me that 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 language lends itself to the rest of us, too. I mean, mm. being an artist is specialized, but it, mm. thinking about making as something we all do each in our own ways, mm-hmm. including in mm. our family lives. Um, and there's so many forms for making. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but I'd like to say it again. Yeah. Is that in the, um, like, I love reading the dictionary. And the Oxford English Dictionary has, I don't know how many pages to vote, devoted to to make and making and all of its possibilities. And I think that's like making, it's the same as like making a list of all the materials that exist in the world that you might transform in some way. And it's like if you make that list and you take the list of every, all the possibilities of what making is, like that can just keep you busy forever. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but and, it also, and you never even get around to the making. Yeah, but it makes you feel like it's like, you see the possibilities. Like, we get blinded to the yeah. possibilities that we actually have. And I think that's... So you have these little tricks that you do with... You play with yourself to see those. I, everybody should try that, that one. <laughs> the list. The list, I'm yeah. also pretty intrigued by the idea of reading the dictionary. I never thought of that. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe you. I just had never thought of it before. Yeah. Well, and it's because like, it's just as materials obviously carry histories of the animal or the technologies that made them or where they came from in the earth, that words also carry all of those histories. Yeah. And um, although that's not my area, I, uh, I, there's a reason certain words work, and it's because of the histories that they carry for us. Mm-hmm. So um, lifting that to the, to the surface is... Uh, of recognition is important. Mm. Yeah. And so you um, now live in Columbus again, is that right, in mm-hmm. Ohio? And yeah. uh, I don't know, someplace you were talking about, this is another interview, my life is busy, I travel a lot, but the, within that my life is very domestic. You're married, you have a son, you have a cat and a dog. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You live in a, an American neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. And at, but as an artist, as a maker... As a professional maker, mm-hmm. um, you know you're exotic, right? You're doing things that are very <laughs> original and out there, and mm. and um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious about. Um, do you? I wonder how you interact with your neighbors in your ordinary American neighborhood in Ohio. <laughs> like, how? Not not. They how don't think inter- I'm exotic, <laughs> <laughs> right? But how do you, do you think about talking to them about, you know, like something like the exhibit you're doing at the Armory or the Tower in California or the Meditation Boat in Laos? I mean, um, or wading through paper and, you know, about how that is connected to this very common longing, Uh you know, that's come through again and again of just, you know, who are we now and and what are are we to each other? Yeah. 
Well, I'm really lucky to live someplace where my neighbors are friends. You know, and I've been there now a long time. You know, I've been there since the early 90s. And um, so, for instance, down the street are um, two friends who are both singers. And although their day jobs are different um, than that, you know, when I started to work on the armory, I talk to them a lot about voice. And I go hear them, and I learn from them. And, and they help me trust what I'm doing. And, and they contribute to it a lot. Uh, and I had a most amazing conversation a few nights ago with my neighbor who has just moved in, who's a sophomore and has moved from China to go to school mm-hmm. at OSU, where I teach. And he had been to an art event at the Wexner Center, and it had been a music video, a music concert with live mixing of video. And he, it was such an intense experience for him. He didn't know what to do with it. The, the video? The, the experience of the performance. Mm-hmm. And so he came next door. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And he came over <laughs> to bring me my cat back, who goes and lives in his house when we're out. And it's cold out. And he came over, and he wanted to... We talked for probably two hours about how he felt. And he didn't know what to call this thing. And he said, I kept... I would, I, it, he said it made me feel things. I, I didn't know how to process. And it was really scary. And... So it was effective that this art was happening. And is this new? Is this the new art? Uh-huh. And that was a long conversation. And what did you tell him? <laughs> um, well, I listened mostly, mm-hmm. you know. But I think it was partly about how did he even think about what the nature of that experience was, mm-hmm. and and how amazing it was that he allowed himself again to be vulnerable enough to be open to this thing that was kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And 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 that it, it, he kept talking about how it felt on his skin, how the experience of watching felt on his skin. Yes, he was speaking your language. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh huh. And so he's a new neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I think that I, I know when you look at the projects. Uh, when they're finished or from afar, you know, they look sometimes enormous and they are in enormous spaces or they happened over a long period of time. But it's really one tiny little step after another and it's, it's an associational process. And pretty soon, you know, they arrive like a sweater being knitted into this larger thing. And, oh. um, and it's just, it's, it's, there's something actually kind of very practical about it and very mundane and really, you know, uh, ordinary. I, I mean, I'm a, um, I know, it's like there's a pragmatism in it mm-hmm. that I think is really part of how I get there. And on the other hand, I love huge volumes of space. Like, like being in a gigantic space is something that, um, you know, it's like it, you feel it here. And, and so um, on the one hand, there's this really practical step, step, step. And on the other hand, it's like, you know, it's like wanting to fling yourself into something that's gigantic and mm. will absorb you and is kind of scary. Mm. And, I mean, even transcendent in a way that it, then it transcends all those pragmatic steps mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And together. Too. Yeah. Okay. Thank Anne you. Hamilton, thank you. Thank you. It's been really delightful. Mm-hmm. Thanks, everyone, for yeah. coming. Thank you. Thank you.